And so, yeah, this is a really high standard to get to, but that's good because, right, we need to be academically rigorous before we say something causes something else because that's a big statement to make. Welcome back, everybody, to the Building Lifelong Athletes podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Renneke. Thanks so much for stopping by. I really appreciate it. Today, we're going to talk about epidemiology. We're going to talk about you know how we design studies, how we look at studies, and how we can use these studies to determine um, you know what we know. And so this can be extrapolated to any type of study, but we're going to use this to kind of set the table for looking forward to how we look at cardiology studies. So let's dive right into it. All right, so first things first, we're gonna talk about you know why this is important. Well, it's important to understand where we came from, right? If you understand how studies work, how we design them, and what they can actually show, then it's really helpful to, to know. This also will help describe some of the studies we see in this field. So specifically, we're looking at cardiology, right? And you know, lipids, and we're looking at those kind of studies, and we're gonna cover you know the predominant number of studies and the way they do those studies that we see in the cardiology field. So it, it, it'll help us like set the table for that. Um, also it helps, you know, this is going to help you understand what to look for when you're reading literature articles, right? So when you're looking at stuff and reading things, it'll kind of give you some ideas as to, Hey, this is what I, sh I should expect. This is what I see here. And, you know, and these are really applicable to any field, right? So, you I know, mean, we're talking about cardiology and lipids, but really once you have the skill here of understanding literature and how to, how to look at it and read it, you, know, you can use it for any sort of field. So that's why I think this is an important and worthwhile lecture today. All right, so let's talk about the basics first. So epidemiology, just kind of getting definition out of there, essentially the study of distribution and determinants of disease frequency in a human population. So what that kind of means is we're studying who gets disease and how many people are affected. And so it's kind of like I said, a lot of words there, but we're, we're studying who gets disease, how they're affected. You know, we are not with epidemiology, we are not studying what causes it. So once again, this is not what causes something. You know, this is by nature usually observational. And so we're looking to identify trends, right? In observational studies, we're trying to see, hey, is there an association here? Is there something going on? Is, you know, one risk factor linked to an outcome? That's kind of what we're looking for in these studies, but we're not trying to determine causality at all with this. And so a couple topics and, you know, things of importance in these epidemiologic studies, we talk about incidence and prevalence. So incidence defined here is the number of new occurrences of a disease in a population of at-risk individuals within a specific time frame. So essentially, like I said, we talked about number of new occurrences of the disease in a population at a specific time frame. We're only counting new cases here. So if, for example, if you had this condition last year and you still have it this year, like you are not counted because you're not a new case. So the incidence is just new cases in a set amount of time. Um, and then also we have to have a time frame, right? Because then that determines what actually is new, right? If you just had a continuous running clock, then it's like, well, is it ever new? Who knows what? So this is where we have a definitive time frame. Um, and also this is, you know, with any susceptible individual, so a population that's at risk. So we have a more specific population that narrows a little bit. If we compare incidence to prevalence though, prevalence is the number of cases in a specific population at a specific point in time. And so this includes all cases, including pre-existing conditions. So before with incidence, you know, the incidence of some disease is only counting new cases. Now the prevalence is all of them. So, you know, let's say a lot of these people in these studies had heart disease last year. Well, unsurprisingly, they also have it this year. So you're going to count them in that as well when we're talking about prevalence. So kind of taking a step back here, epidemiology is looking at the study of who gets diseases, how many people, and you know, in the associations with them, right? We're gonna talk about the incidence, which is the number of all new cases in a population over a period of time, and the prevalence, which is the number of all cases. So not just new, new and old, prevalence is all cases. And so just kind of touching on observational studies, this is what we wanna just talk about here. There's a lot of observational studies. They're super, super important, you know? When these are designed, typically what we're looking for when we're running an observational study is we're looking to examine relationships between exposures occurring within a free living population and the disease outcome. So breaking that down, a free living population means like 
you doing what you're doing. Like, so when we say free living environment, that means you're just living your life. So you eat what you want, you do what you want. That's just how it goes. So we're not, you know, controlling people in a lab or anything like that, but we're looking at these relationships between exposure. So some sort of exposure, some risk factor potentially, and seeing, you know, within these people, does it have, does it produce a disease or an outcome that we're looking for? So we're looking at, you know, in these groups that we're looking at, are there certain exposures that lead to disease? It may or may not. And that's what we're looking for in these observational standards. You know, when we're running these tests, say, hey, we, we can kind of see, is there a correlation? And these studies are very useful, but there's lots of limitations. So the two big things are, you know, residual confounding and biases. And it's super tough to eliminate confounders. And confounders are, you know, it's some variable that influences both the supposed cause and effect or the independent and dependent variable. So like putting that in layman's terms, it's like some variable that we don't really know what's going on, but that it is impacting the cause and effects so impacting, you know, the population and the outcome potentially. So like an example that I think of here is like, let's say you look at sunburns and ice cream consumption, right? And you find that there's a higher ice cream consumption on, you know, that's associated with a higher probability of sunburn. So you're saying, whoa, so like there's people eating a lot of ice cream and people getting a lot of sunburn, like what's going on there? It's like, well, does the ice cream cause a sunburn? Like, of course not. We know that the confounding variable here is temperature. You know, as hot temperature, people eat more ice cream and spend more out time, you know, time outdoors and get sunburned. So, you know, when we're talking about a confounder, it's something that has to play with both variables we're looking at here, but that's completely separate. And so that can be really tricky and that can kind of lead to um, results that aren't exactly as accurate as we think. But, you know, these studies though can still provide really good information. They can provide awesome starting off points for us, you know, to kind of move forward and say, Hey, looking at, you know, I saw this in this observational study. Let's dig a little deeper there and do a more, more controlled study potentially, but really, really important. We're going to now talk about the different types of observational studies, the two main types. The first type is a case control study. So this definition, this is a study that compares patients who have a disease or an outcome of interest with patients who don't have that. Um, and they look back retrospectively to compare, you know, how frequent their exposure was to a risk factor um, for these different groups, for the people that had them and kind of help them determine is there a relationship between the risk factor and the disease. So like, that's a lot of words. What they're saying is we're looking at people, you know, in current day who have some sort of disease, we go back in time. That means retrospectively, we're going back in time to see, hey, was there a certain risk factor that they were exposed to um, that led to this outcome? So for an example, say we'll talk about sunscreen and cancer. So, right, yeah, we wanna see if zinc oxide, you know, the white stuff, the white kind of sunscreen, if that causes cancer. We then find a group of lifeguards who have, you know, have face or neck cancer and then a group who didn't, who are also lifeguards. And then we would see how often they use zinc oxide to see if there's a relationship. So once again, we're starting with what we know in the outcome and going backwards um, to see, was there anything else? So it's retrospective in nature. Um, it's not an expensive study. And one of the good things is it's pretty affordable to do and it can be done quickly, which is awesome because obviously we have like the outcome here. We just need to go back and determine it. The cons are that, you know, both the exposure and the disease have already happened. So there's a high susceptibility to something called recall bias, which means like you're asking them to remember something. And a lot of times people who are asked to remember something can, you know, remember incorrectly essentially is what it comes down to. And we can have, um, you know, an inadequate risk assessment and saying they, Hey, they thought they did more or they thought they did less than what actually happened. And so that can be kind of tricky. The next type of study is a cohort study and a cohort study, like I said, on the case control was retrospective. This is going to be more prospective here. So essentially what happens here is one or more cohorts are followed prospectively and evaluations are done to determine if, you know, the initial risk factors or exposures that one of the groups had is associated with the disease or outcome. So essentially what we're going to do is participants who are at risk, but they're, they don't have the disease yet. Right. And so as opposed to our case control, right, we know the outcome. We already have the disease for cohort study. We're saying we, they don't have the disease yet. 
They're going to, hey, look at these two groups and say, this group has this one risk factor. They're going to follow them going forward and see if that leads to, you know, is there a relationship with the exposure and the disease incidence. So another one here, we can do sunscreens and sunburn, right? So you find two groups, one who wears sunscreen, one who does not, and follow up to see if the outcome we're looking for is associated with the variable, you know, like sunscreen. So we're saying, hey, is there an association between the group who doesn't wear sunscreen and sunburns? And obviously we're going to find, you know, an association there, but that's essentially what we're looking for is like these two groups who are pretty darn similar, you know, in terms of we're able to pick that pretty darn well and then say, Hey, this one has this one exposure, this one risk factor. We're going to follow them and see what happens. Does it lead to the outcome that we think it might? And that's really kind of cool to see. Like I said, What's nice is this does establish more temporal relationship between the exposure and the disease, meaning before in the case control, it's like we go back and it's like, oh, I think I did this and maybe I started here. We're not quite sure here. It's like, okay, we're starting at time zero and you don't have this thing. We're going to follow you forward and see it so we can understand like what's the time relationship between the exposure and the disease. And then also we can directly calculate incident rate as patients don't have the disease yet, right? So we can calculate the incidence rate like we just talked about there, but there are some limitations obviously. So this does take a lot of time. You got to sit there and twiddle your thumbs and just wait for for something to happen and for the outcome to happen. And then it can also be expensive because lots of large samples are usually needed and you have to have follow up with a lot of patients. So that can be tricky as well. But um, in, it's nice because you can kind of control what you're looking for as opposed to going back and relying on recall bias and things like that. So, but just something to think about, those are the two main uh, observational studies that we talk about. All right, so next we're going to talk about bias and confounding. We've talked about confounding a little bit, but just a refresher here, you know, the confounding is where there's mixing of effects where the observed relationship between the exposure and the disease is either fully or partially due to some third factor. So like we talked, that was the ice cream and sunburn example where like there's some third factor mixing in there, aka the temperature that is throwing off relationship between the exposure and the disease. And so if a confounder is present, it may lead to an over or underestimation of the true association. That's why, you know, we really, really, really want to like try to get these out of there. The best way to minimize this is to do good matching in the study and have a really, really good, you know, study design. Or we can do some statistical things like multivariate regressions and statistical analyses that kind of like tease out things. So what you do there is a lot of times if we're looking for, you know, the association of something with heart disease. You know, you look at these numbers and say, oh, this is associated, but, you know, all these patients had elevated BMI, had elevated lipids. So, like, if you start teasing out, you know, you control for the lipids, the hypertension, the obesity, all those things that you kind of tease away, then we're trying to, like, delineate, okay, is this the one thing we're looking for actually related or are there other confounders? And that's why when we say we're trying to control for confounders, that's what we're trying to do. We're essentially trying to tease away, like, the rest of the noise to try to get, you know, just the one thing we're looking at, which is really hard to do, right? Obviously, there's lots of things going on in life. Things are really tricky and people... People are not just robots where one input changes, you know, there's lots of things going on and lots of things kind of intertwine with each other. So it's really challenging to do, but that's what we try to do and to try to limit confounding and bias bias kind of piggybacks with that, but it's a little different. This is a bias is a systematic error that results in an inaccurate estimate of the association between disease and exposure. So once again, a systematic error, something that's happening that, you know, is affecting our results that we don't know is happening. Obviously, you know, very rarely is someone like purposely by doing something biased. Like it's not the intention of science, but you know, a lot of times you have something that's happening. We don't know that there's two main types of selection and information bias. So selection bias, this is when a sample of individuals are chosen for inclusion that, and it differs significantly from the target population. So an example would be like, 
we're looking at our sunburn and ice cream group, right? Like let's say in this study, the we accidentally ask members from an ice cream eaters social group the question and the results are thrown off, right? So, you know, we're asking people like who are part of this ice cream eaters group who eat it all year. They go out every week and eat ice cream, right? And they somehow get in the study. It's like, well, they're very different from like the average person that we're trying to look for. So like somehow when we're selecting them, their characteristics, um, they differ from the intended target audiences. And so that's kind of like selection bias. Um, there's another thing called the information bias, where essentially this is where data on the exposure or outcome, they're obtained differently from different study groups, or they're measured or recorded incorrectly. And, you know, there's a couple different types for that, things like misclassification, observer, recall, and reporting bias, but recall is the most common. And a lot of times what happens, like we mentioned before, recall bias, essentially people just recall things incorrectly. Uh, studies are show time and time again, people are not really good at like knowing what they did in the past. I mean, there's even studies where like people ask you, what did you eat yesterday? And people are like, I, I don't know. I have no idea. So we're just not good at going back. And so to have our whole crux of our, our study based on like people, what they recall they did sometimes like years and years ago, um, can be an uh, area that can lead to a lot of issues and, you know, maybe not the most accurate information, but like I said, the best way to control for that though, is a good study design. So, you know, like I said, per, you know, we like to have perspective studies. That's very helpful. We can kind of control things a little better and we're not going to have that recall bias, right? If we have it in, in time zero, but obviously sometimes that happens, but those are the two main areas that we're looking for. Like, Hey, when I, when we're seeing an observational study, we need to keep in mind that these things could be happening. That could be throwing off our results. Okay, next now we are moving on from our observational to our more experimental trials, right? So an experiment, like we show in this picture here, if you're watching the video version, is someone getting in there doing something, you know, like we learned in science class, you develop your hypothesis and you do an experiment and see what happens. That's essentially what we're going for a randomized controlled trial, but just to the next level. This is typically our gold standard for supporting causal relationships between exposures and health outcomes. Causal relationships, meaning that, hey, with randomized controlled trials, we can actually say, hey, this causes that. You know, we this is has strong enough data. Obviously, you know, one specific study may not be the gold standard, but when you start getting multiple RCTs, you can say confidently, hey, this causes that. We like this, you know, number one, because it's perspective, like we talked about. We start at time zero. We can kind of see what happens when we do an intervention. And what happens in these randomized controlled trials, people are randomly assigned to either intervention or control group. So each participant should have a predefined chance of being assigned to either, you know, the treatment group and they should have, you know, the option to have the similar prognosis, right? So that we're hopefully taking a very, very similar group. We're mixing them all up, right? So you get a group, a uh, computer kind of mixes them up in terms of different qualities. Once again, we're kind of taking out confounders as best as possible, meaning, you know, in this group, we have the same amount of men and women and this group, same amount of men and women. They have the same age and educational status and all those things we're trying to control for saying, let's take all of these individual variables out as much as we can and then just have two similar groups. And we're hoping that, like I said, with we randomize, they should be balanced. And then, you know, go from there, we can hopefully have a very, very controlled group. And then, you know, one group's going to have the intervention, the other one's not. And if we have two similar groups and one gets intervention and one doesn't, and we see a difference in that group that got the intervention, then we feel a lot more confident saying, okay, what happened to them or that exposure actually led to that outcome. And so that's why we love randomized controlled trials because it's like, okay, we've kind of like leveled the playing field, everything's very even, but this one thing changed, this one thing changed and this happened. So we feel much more confident that, you know, this change led to that. Um, you know, the problem with this is they're super expensive and difficult to run and design and they take a long time. Um, it's so it's, it's our gold standard, but they're really hard to do. And, you know, they take a lot of time. And that being said, we always put like the randomized control trial on a pedestal and they are great. Cause if you think about it, it's kind of how, you know, science quote unquote should be right. Like we control as much as we can and go forward. But that being said, they're still poorly run randomized control trials and a bad study is still a bad study. And just cause there is one randomized control trial that shows something doesn't mean that, you know, this is ultimately correct. You know, I've, 
seen tons of randomized trials that this shows something and this shows something different. And once again, when we step back, like we talked about, like we got to look at everything in totality. So I never look at one article and say like, this is the definitive thing. You say, hey, where does this fit the entire, you know, picture of the literature? But, you know, RCTU does helpful if it's done well, it does give a lot of good information. All right, let's talk about Mendelian randomization now. So what this is essentially, we're using the power of genes to help us augment a study. So what's happening here in Mendelian randomization, you know, we're having a random assortment of genes that are inherited by an offspring, you know, from the parents during meiosis. So if you remember during meiosis, everything's lining up. We kind of have crossing over of the DNA. This is what happens here where you randomly get assigned DNA and we look at, you know, the outcome here. Essentially, we're using is some genetic variation, right? So obviously in this crossover, when we have all these, this DNA mixing, you know, we have some sort of specific traits and this genetic variation can be used as a proxy to investigate a relationship between, you know, potentially modifiable risk factors and outcomes. So we're using these variants as essentially variables that can be treated as risk factors, which is actually kind of cool. Um, it's, it's observational in nature. So this is not a randomized controlled trial, at least not yet. Nobody's splicing up genes yet and randomly experimenting on humans. That's very unethical. Um, it's observational, but we feel like it has a lot less bias. We feel like there's less bias, less confounding. And, you know, we also have less reverse causation than normal studies because these genetic variants, they're randomly allocated, right? To individuals, you know, before any exposure or disease outcome. So kind of like we talked about, it is observational in nature, but what we're doing is we're finding these people who have a specific, you know, gene modification or variation that leads to a specific trait, right? You know, for an example here is we use this to discover the PCSK9 and Neiman-PIK C1-like-1 proteins, which as we know, can both result in lower LDLs and less cardiovascular risk. So what they did is they essentially found, hey, this person genetically was not making PCSK9. And if you remember, PCSK9 binds the LDL receptor, degrades the LDL receptor. So people who have normally, you know, PCSK9 are degrading their LDL receptors and might have higher LDL. Let's say they don't have that PCSK9, so it's like they essentially have a built-in PCSK9 inhibitor, right? Like, let's just say that. What they were finding is that these people had significantly lower LDL and significantly less cardiovascular disease. So what we did with Mendelian randomization, we essentially got an experiment of this group that got randomized to a intervention, right? So the intervention would be a PCSK9 inhibitor, like theoretically, but what happened was they got randomized into that by just by their genetics. And then they were able to say, Hey, this is where they started. And let's look forward to see what's going on. And they saw they had a lot lower LDL and less cardiovascular risk. And it was fascinating to see that, right? You know, we never would have expected that we were kind of looking for, it, and that actually helped the whole discovery of the PCSK9 inhibitors and moving forward in those drugs. So it's been really helpful for discovery and pharmacotherapy, but we like this because it's another, it's just another means of evidence, right? It's another, you know, thing that we can put on our belt and say, Hey, we have observational studies. We have randomized controlled tri trials. We have Mendelian randomization, all of these things point in the same direction. And now we're starting to see like, Hey, the totality of evidence is kind of pointing you know, in the same direction for what we're looking at, but super cool. And you'll see that in the cardiology studies and you'll see it more and more, I'm sure, but I definitely wanted to mention that. All right, so next I kind of want to talk about association versus causation, kind of laying the groundwork for saying, hey, we have observational studies, we have randomized control trials, we have Mendelian randomization, you know, but how do we like know something's actually caused by something? So, right, if we have association causation, for individual observational studies like that, once again, that's never gonna prove anything, not gonna show any causation. It's essentially just providing evidence that there's associations between you know risks and health outcomes. I kind of think it was like a hypothesis generating you know, study where, hey, we see this, we see this relationship, it's cool, but now we need to figure out ways to like isolate this one thing we're looking at and then go further from there. But so once again, observational studies are not going to directly say something's caused something, but it does fit into the overall picture of how we feel like we know something's being caused by something. So for causality, there's certain things that kind of run down the list here. 
we need to look at the totality of evidence, right? So we're not cherry picking single studies. You can do that for anything. There's just so much literature and everything comes out so fast these days that you can find a study for pretty much anything you want. And, and, and so this doesn't help us though, right? We're not gonna look at one study. We step back and say, hey, what does the body of literature look like? We're really bad at this today. People will cherry pick all the time. But if you step back and say, hey, what does everything show? Then you'll start to see some pretty significant trends. Also, we care about the strength and consistency of those relationships, right? Across different studies, different populations. So once again, we're not looking at one study, we're looking at the body of evidence and what is the trend of that body of evidence showing us? That is gonna tell us a lot between, you know, how many papers are in this direction and what's the strength of these papers going in that direction. That can be really helpful for showing causation. And then we should see a dose response, meaning that we have a progressively greater exposure that's associated with a greater or higher risk. So if something's truly a risk factor, then if you're exposed to more of it, then you should have a higher chance of getting that disease. That's just kind of, you know, makes sense. And on top of that of making sense, we should to make, you know, we should have a biologically plausible mechanism as to why exposure might be causing something. So if there's no plausible mechanism, if we have no idea, like saying, uh, this happens, but we don't know why, then it's really hard to say like, Hey, this causes that. But if we have, you know, strong evidence, we're starting to layer this evidence. And then we do a mechanistic study saying, Hey, this would make sense because of this leads to this. Like we feel like that might be the cause. That's just another piece. Like I said, another piece of the puzzle of what would be causing that. And on top of that, we should have things that are in temporal in nature, meaning risk factor precedes the disease. Uh, it's kind of, you know, no brainer, but exposure should come first. If the exposure does not come first, then we can't say that causes it. And so once again, everything's just kind of layering on each other, right? We maybe do some observational studies to say, hey, there's some sort of risk factor going on there. I'm not sure what that's all about. And then you start doing a couple more, you can start having some corroboration. It's getting there, you start to see, you know, maybe a dose response. Then you start getting a biologically plausible idea. You understand in the lab what's going on. You see, hey, before I do this, now this causes this. We're starting to feel really strong. And then, you know, I think the most important thing is we have confirmatory evidence from lab and clinical intervention studies. So like I said, these ideas and theories are great and we have these general understandings, but until we have studies showing that things are actually happening, we can't say it's causal. And I, for us in, you know, human medicine, I think it's really important that we have human clinical data. So like, right, if you get everything up to, you know, the step we're just doing some stuff, maybe in the Petri dish or lab or even rats, it's going to be really hard to say this causes this in humans if we don't have any good data like from humans yet. And so what we look for is like clinical outcomes with actual meaningful things, meaning like heart disease, heart attacks, you know, strokes, all those things are the things we look for in like the cardiology world. And so looking at those specific outcomes, we have all the evidence and we start to see it in the humans. Then we can feel pretty darn confident that this is causing that. And so, yeah, this is a really high standard to get to, but that's good because, right, we need to be academically rigorous before we say something causes something else because that's a big statement to make. All right, before we wrap up here, I'm just going to mention one landmark study. Uh, we'll get into more landmark studies and to begin with, but it's kind of like laying the foundation for essentially cardiology research in America. So you might've heard of the Framingham Heart Study before. So this is the town hall of Framingham, Massachusetts, uh, if you're following along in the video version. What this study was, this was in 1948, and this was the first ever large-scale prospective population-based investigation of cardiovascular disease in the U.S. They enrolled about 5,200 men and women between age 30 and 62, and then followed them for you know quite a while. And essentially, what they followed them for is like two generations with multiple studies going forward. That wasn't the initial intention, but so they did followed for about two generations to determine what characteristics were associated with cardiovascular disease later in life. You know what this showed was there pretty clear evidence that there are certain risk factors that could predict um, your high 
high risk um, chance of getting cardiovascular disease and identified four major modifiable risk factors, those being high cholesterol, high blood pressure, smoking, and diabetes, which today those are all our, you know, our bedrock as to what we, what we stand for, for cardiovascular risk. And so I just want to mention it because as you see here, this is kind of like got the ball rolling. This is an observational study, got the ball rolling, kind of started it. And that's why I want to include it because it's so important for science. You know, a lot of times people will, you know, kind of say, oh, it's just observational, but no, like observational is like the base of things. That's where we start. And then as we go, we need higher and higher levels of information and, and evidence to show something is, is causal, but it's really cool because it's kind of like laid the foundation for everything. And we'll talk more about specific ones, but just wanted to wrap it up here and, and say that no study is perfect, right? We do the best we can to limit confounding and biases, but we're always going to have bias. We're always going to have confounding in all of our studies. And no one paper is perfect. You know, there's some really, really good run papers and good run experiments, and there's not so good, but you kind of have to once again step back and see all of them. Just to review here, if we're having an observational study, the two we have most likely are cohort or case control. Cohort is prospective, looking at an exposure and then the outcome, whereas case control is looking retrospective at a group that has an outcome, looking to find a specific risk factor. You know, going from there, we have RCTs, which are a big step forward, our randomized controlled trial. They have a good way of controlling our design and making groups randomized, and we can determine causation from this. Then we also have Mendelian randomization, which is observational, but have a much better control of bias because we have some, um, some randomization in there as well with the Mendelian you know, genes and how they're inherited. And then at the end of the day, causality, we need to have a bunch of different things, right? Totality of evidence, strength of relationships, hard outcome data from study, so a bunch of different things. So when we look at research, I just want to have you be able to understand, hey, these are the types of studies we're looking at to kind of evaluate things. So just when you're going forward and reading any articles on your own, or not, if you see an observational study, then you can say, hey, I know this doesn't cause anything, can't show causality, but it's a good piece of information. I just want you to have the knowledge that like, hey, this is where we started in terms of research and kind of how, where we've gone from here. And in the next lesson, we'll kind of talk about a lot of studies that paved the way for um, the knowledge that we know now. But I thought this was useful information. I, I hope you found it helpful. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I really appreciate it. If you found this helpful, it would really be helpful to me if you liked, commented, subscribed, or shared it with a friend as it helps get the word out about the podcast. Now, I hope you learned something today. Now get off the computer, go live your life, and we'll see you next time. Disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The topics discussed should not solely be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any condition. The information presented here was created with an evidence-based approach, but please keep in mind that science is always changing, and at the time of listening to this, there may be some new data that makes this information incomplete or inaccurate. Always seek the advice of your personal physician or qualified healthcare provider for questions regarding any medical condition.